Hello, and welcome to Behind the Buyouts, the deals podcast, where we sit down with a leading private markets investor and drill down into their buyouts and venture capital deals. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. I'm Steve Jelsey, Senior Private Equity Reporter for The Deal and the host of this podcast. Today, we're joined by Christopher Gaffney. He's a veteran of private equity going back to the 1980s, but he's still chomping at the bit. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Steve, great to be with you today. So last year, we featured Chris in a private briefing article that I wrote about how the firm looks beyond the more highly trafficked areas of Silicon Valley or the Washington-Boston corridor as it deploys its seventh fund. The landscape has sure changed since then, Chris. And that was just last September when we really touched base with you. And gosh, what a different world we're in now, right? Uh, A few months makes a huge difference. Uh, So one of the uh, deals that you did recently was Wayfair. So this is this is a very interesting deal. This is, as we said, this is behind the buyout. So let's get behind this deal of Wayfair. And now Great Hill announced a $535 million convertible note financing of the company with Charles Bank in an uncertain economic environment. So Chris, uh, let's kick it off by talking about Wayfair. Happy to do that. Our history with Wayfair goes back quite a ways. We made our first investment in the company back in, I think it was 2011. We were part of their very first institutional round of financing. And my partner, Mike Kuman has been lead director for the company ever since. It's a business that's grown from 500 million in sales to over 10 billion in sales. We had distributed and sold all of the shares we had from our first uh, investment, and it followed the company very, very closely. You know, the, the stock market, I think, got it really wrong, and it created a great opportunity for us. The stock was falling, but we had every confidence that the management team uh, was going to pull on a number of levers to make their business more profitable. And it turned out that in a pandemic, being an e-commerce seller of home goods is a really good place to be. Well, yeah, because people are stuck at home looking to buy stuff and you couldn't even buy anything at a store in most places. So kind of a no-brainer, but I guess it got caught up in the big down drop in the stock market all across the board in March, right? Yeah, the stock last year was in the 170 range. And in March this year, it hit $20, $21, $22 a share. That was really a mismatch with the fundamentals for the business where the company had continued to grow. Uh, They wanted to put some cash on their balance sheet as insurance. And we were more than happy to work with the business and are delighted to be investors again. We just think this is an awesome business model and a first-class management team. They're going to grow a very big company and we're happy to be investors again. Do you think that's, that there might be some volatility? There could be some downside to that because there is a lot of optimism in the market right now around a vaccine for COVID-19 and, and the stock prices have come roaring back. Is it a little bit too frothy right now? You know, I always focus on the fundamentals rather than the stock market. If you get the fundamentals right, and you can play through movement up and down in the stock market, you'll do just fine. This stock for us after it went public traded all over the place. And we held it through as the company grew from 4 billion in sales to 10 billion in sales. They have a phenomenal business model. They have lots of levers to pull in terms of improving profitability. And the business is incredibly well positioned versus brick and mortar competitors. This is all the things the company talks about in their press releases and their conference calls, quarterly conference calls. So um, there's nothing here that isn't public information. We just frankly believe 
that this business will perform well over time. So Silver Lake, Apex, or a couple of other private equity firms that have been making convertible or other types of transactions with publicly traded companies to inject capital into them. And so Wayfair is another example of this with Great Hill and Charles Bank. Now, Charles Bank, you're, you're, you're both in Boston, so the, you know, to the two firms there probably know each other pretty well. So you teamed up with them on this? Yeah, we're, we're very friendly with the firm. And uh, one of the partners at Charles Bank is friendly with the management team as Wayfair. But we're, again, my, my partner, Mike Cuman, has been lead director of the company. So our, uh, our insight's been consistent and pretty constant now for a decade. Right, because you took the company public and you, you, you backed the company when it went public the first time around. So you, you know them pretty well. They probably haven't changed all that much since that time. They're just bigger and better and have a better franchise. So I mentioned Silver Lake and Apex. Why are private equity firms doing this? We are seeing a lot of these uh, transactions with publicly traded companies. Do you think we may see fewer of them now that stock prices have sort of recovered or why, why is this happening in the first place? Well, there's a need. That's the first, uh, the first point, obviously, is that for various companies that are affected in different ways, if you need capital when the capital markets are shut down, negotiating a private deal is one of the only ways that you can get capital. Uh, secondly, uh, you've got private equity investors with lots of cash looking for interesting and profitable ways to deploy. These big companies offer less risk than smaller companies. And frankly, deploying capital in the private markets today, as hard as we try, and we're trying very, very hard, uh, to take advantage of market opportunities. Good companies in the private market, if they don't have to sell, particularly at a lower price, they're going to wait. So yes. I think it was the combination of need for some of these businesses, along with the opportunity for private equity to see, oppor to see um, opportunities at good prices during the middle of the pandemic. Right. So speaking of the pandemic, it's come up many times already in our conversation, but Chris, you've been on the merry-go-round for a while, since the 80s, the late 80s. How would you compare this downturn to others? Well, it's so interesting. This is my third or fourth downturn. Uh, I mean, I remember the Gulf War recession that led to a period of time, 91 to 94, where, frankly, I felt like that they were pitching at your bat. Uh, all you had to do was stick it out there. You didn't even have to swing, and you'd get a hit. Um, <laughs> I remember the period of time here after the internet bubble. That was different because the business models there hadn't matured enough. The eyeball valuations weren't very real. But frankly, I think the biggest change, and this was extremely evident after the Great Recession, is that the amount of capital today versus 10, 20, and 30 years ago, particularly 20 and 30 years ago, is so much greater that after the Great Recession, 2010, 2011, values popped back so much more quickly than they did after the Gulf War recession or after the 2001 recession. Mm -hmm. And I would anticipate that that would be the case here as well. I don't expect a long period of low value for companies that can continue to perform. I expect values to stay pretty high and it's a direct result of how much capital is available in the private markets. So, Chris, what got you interested in private equity in the first place? 
Steve, when I started in private equity, it didn't even have a name. And certainly the name wasn't private equity. It was basically a bunch of guys doing LBOs and other private financings. This is 1986. I was 23 years old. I was at a commercial bank lending money to guys doing these deals. And someone mistook me for a 29-year-old with an MBA because I was balding and shot my mouth off a lot. So probably the only time I ever considered my lack of hair to be a true asset. <laughs> well, that's an interesting story. It uh, you definitely turned uh, some lemons into lemonade there for sure. So what would be the biggest change in the deal-making landscape between where you started and now? As you said, it wasn't even called private equity when you started. And now private equity basically represents a bigger part of the American economy than the stock market does. Uh, for example, there's more large private companies than there are publicly traded companies of similar size to some extent, at least in the middle market. So any other macro stuff you want to point out that's, that's happened? Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, so much has happened as the industry's matured and institutional investors have realized that they can get consistent and attractive risk-adjusted returns by investing in private asset classes. The huge number of dollars is also divided among lots of different flavors. Credit, infrastructure, real estate, growth, different flavors of growth, traditional buyout. There's, everyone is pursuing different strategies and looking under every rock and in every corner to extract returns from the marketplace. And that's a huge, huge difference over the past 10 and 15 years than from where the business was before. Definitely. And in terms of Great Hill, you're taking a look at fintech, you're taking a look at the consumer sector, you're looking at healthcare. Am I missing anything? Some of the main pillars there. Well, certainly uh, B2B technology, so software, is another main pillar, our four pillars that you've mentioned. And, you know, the flavor that we play is growth equity, meaning we're interested in companies that can fundamentally grow organically at at least 15% or better. Coming into the, the pandemic, our portfolio in 2019, 31 companies, the median growth rate was 27%. So fully half of our portfolio growing faster than 30% of year. You may be surprised to know that even with the pandemic now, two-thirds of our portfolio will grow at 15% or better this year, 2020, over 2019. And I think it just points out that if you had strong trends coming into um, the crisis, trends like automation, cost savings, e-commerce, if you were basically collaboration, cloud, if you were where the business market was moving, This has just accelerated those trends and those companies will continue to grow. If you came in old economy, you're kind of in trouble. Fortunately, because we were focused on growth, we are focused on those trends that are favored in this environment for the most part. Well, that's a good place to be. Can you talk about deal pricing and pipeline moving forward and M&A opportunities, particularly in the consumer sector? Are you seeing any deals out there at all? that are in terms of sales processes that are actually going on or is it pretty, pretty quiet? Well, if we start with the macro, there's no question that volume is reduced. 
the number of transactions that we have an opportunity to look at is down. If you have a really great company, you're probably not pushing it into this market because you think that if you wait 6, 12, 18 months, you'll get a better price. And that's probably good thinking. Now, that said, companies sell for lots of different reasons at lots of different periods of time. All four of our groups are active, and all four of our groups are active on the two main things we're focused on right now, which are consolidating acquisitions for positions that we already have, tuck-in acquisitions, fold-in acquisitions, ways to make our companies more dominant in their segments. And we have multiple deals that we're working on there. And we are reaching out and making offers to companies and finding a smaller competitors particularly are quite receptive to hear that. We've engaged three new companies this week in that way alone. But we're also looking at platform businesses. Each of our different team has made uh, offers to other businesses and, and each of the teams is engaged in some form of diligence on a new platform company. So the marketplace isn't dead. Uh, the volume's just down considerably. So if you had to pick out a deal that best illustrates where your firm is heading, would you want to focus again on Wayfair or just sort of the whole concept of the online economy and online transactions? So uh, let me throw it out to you to see if there's anything you'd like to talk about specifically by example. Sure. Um, Without revealing what our target names are, let me just talk themes because that's what we talk to our investors about. And in each of our teams, we have themes we're following. On the healthcare side, we continue to look for companies that can lower costs. This environment will only make that all the more important. This will probably turn into a hard market for insurance. Who knows where that will all go? But if we can find companies that lower costs, healthcare costs for other businesses. We've been very successful with our investments there. We continue to look for those types of businesses. On the consumer side, disruptive consumer and people who can build their businesses online has been very, very fruitful for us. You know, you look at private companies in our portfolio like Bombas, the sock business, which is growing gangbusters this year, or Puppy Spot, a marketplace for purebred dogs. Who knew that in a pandemic, everyone needed to own a puppy? We were growing a little bit coming into uh, into the, the 2020 year. Uh, frankly, right now, we're growing faster than we were in the holiday season. It's basically Christmas every day at Puppy Spot for us. So we're looking for other companies similarly positioned and usually selling direct to consumers. Well, you wouldn't happen to know what the favorite breed is on Puppy Spot, would you? I think it's Labradoodle, but I'll check if you really want to know. I'm just wondering. Also, yeah, the other pillars, can you run, run through the opportunities sure, there as well? Sure, absolutely. So in the, uh, in the cloud and software area, the move to the public cloud is obviously a huge trend. And the digitization of company data is another huge trend. We've got a couple of companies playing in that market, and we'd like to have more. The need for companies to get their arms around their own data and make sense of it. If they're going to do this, the the whole movement to AI and machine learning starts with data. And most companies don't have their data in a form that they can effectively apply machine learning or AI to it. So that's a place that we're really going to focus. 
And then finally, integrated payments. One of the strongest trends that we see is around B2B. There's been a lot of work on integrated payments on the consumer side. We see a big movement out of checks and into electronic payments, and we need systems to make that efficient, and we're playing that on the account payable side, on the account receivable side, and we've got some exciting, exciting work, exciting companies that we both have in the portfolio and that we're targeting in those market segments. Well, Chris, thanks for running through some of the headlines of what Great Hill has been up to. It's a pretty exciting firm. You've been prolific on the deal-making front through good times and bad, and I'm sure that'll continue to be the case. We think that this is a really good opportunity if people are focused on what fundamentally where the marketplace is moving, and we're not afraid to pull the trigger as evidenced by our recent investment in Wayfair. So very interested in hearing about any opportunities in areas we're focused on. Okay, thanks again for joining us, Chris. Thank you, Steve, enjoyed it. This is Steve Jelsey, private equity reporter for The Deal and host of Behind the Buyouts. Thanks again for joining us. 